welcome Wandia. We are truly glad to have you as our guest in this second podcast in the series on national culture. In our last podcast, we talked to Godwin Murunga, who introduced Franz Fanon and his intellectual earth before sharing some thoughts on the central thesis of this classical text, The Wretched of the Earth. Towards the end of that podcast, I asked him his thoughts on how culture fits into this discourse of liberation, and he said... Uh, first of all, let's make the point that the struggle does not happen suspended above society. The struggle happens in society, mm -hmm. right? And uh, society is structured around uh, a certain understanding of norms, of habits, of customs, of ways of understanding how they live. By that very fact, by the fact that the struggle happens in society, uh, you cannot then imagine a way in which you isolate culture as sitting at the margins of the struggle itself. In fact, culture is what gives the struggle meaning. It is what gives the, the struggle for independence its identity. So that uh, the kinds of things that uh, the, that particular nationalist struggle deploys in order to attain its objectives are themselves given meaning by the you know the very society in which they come from how people mobilize uh, to, to, to fight the choices they make around how to fight when to fight why to fight who is involved in the struggle are all informed by their own way of life so culture sits at the heart of the struggle for independence and culture defines what nationalism then means uh, to, to these particular people I want to go back and explore this understanding much more by asking you to talk us through Fanon's ideas in the chapter on national culture. But first, I know that this is a book that you're very passionate about. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Why do you think this is an important text? Okay, I grew up reading The Wretched of the Earth. My father had it, in, my parents had it in their library. So I've been reading it since I was in high school. Hold on, high school? High school, yes. So I've been reading it differently at different times, at different stages of my life. But it became especially important to me when I was doing my doctoral studies mm -hmm. because now I was living in the belly of the beast. I had lived in France where Fanon was and it was traumatizing for me. And then I was in the U.S., and I saw what race means and how it distorts um, humanity of black people and how we are always fighting against it. So Fanon became alive for me in that context because then I started to understand what he was saying. And since then, I refer to Wretched of the Earth all the time. In fact, I tell my students it's my Bible. Um, I, I don't understand. There is a lot that I understand in Africa through the eyes of Fanon. So Wretched of the Earth especially is a book that is very dear to my heart. I just want to unpack a bit of that before we go on to talk about the book. First of all, it's interesting to me that you read it in high school because I think Godin made some mention of this last time where he said, we think of it as a book that is read at the university. So I'm interested, I mean, you just picked up the book as a high school student on your own and you were able to read it and make sense of what was in it. Did you talk about this with anybody or you just read it for yourself? I just read it for myself, but you know, my father was involved in the struggles. Mm -hmm. So when I, would, when I picked it from his bookshelf, all the things that I would hear him uh, talking about and struggling about were in Fanon's book. So I just found that so fascinating 
that what my father was talking about in the 80s, Fanon had talked about it in the 60s. So that, that always fascinated me. So when I was reading it that time, that was the connection I was making between what my father was saying and what Fanon was saying. But then, of course, now as I grew up and I got my own experiences, I started to see the echoes of Fanon even in my own experience. And so there is... Um that sense of it's an old book but it's also very current the other thing that i'm interested in is it seems that you did exactly what fanon did you left your country went to interestingly you also went to france mm -hmm. and began to see things where there was this contradiction that you wanted to resolve and you wanted to explore mm -hmm. um are you teaching this book because i know you teach is this something that is part of your syllabus do you teach it oh i started teaching it uh, this i think last year which already for me is a very big tragedy. Our library had no books of, by Fanon by the time I arrived in 2008. So even now the idea of, of ordering them for me was already so, it was a painful experience for me to, to, to think about it and, and go through it. So it is only now this year where I finally got the guts to, to start teaching it at undergraduate level. And it's kind of difficult for the students to grasp, uh, partly because the language of Fanon is actually, his syntax is not very clear. And you see it actually in the French version as much as in the first English translation. He, he's not a very uh, direct writer. He keeps going back and forth in the way he writes. And so it's, it's very hard. It's, very, it's not um, easy to, to understand the text, but also, um, you see, I had a personal experience which made Fanon understandable for me, which was my father's struggles. So because the students don't have that kind of first-hand experience of liberation struggles, then it becomes even harder to understand. And unfortunately, I think in, my, in the first class I did the book in, they came away with the impression that we need to go abroad to understand this book. So probably this semester when I'm teaching it again, I will have to work out how do I make this book very real for a Kenyan student. Do you think it's still relevant to today or would they be studying it as part of history? It's very relevant to today. I always talk about it. So I think it's very relevant. And even when we discussed it last year, the students could pick the relevance from my discussion. But I think they need to get to a point where now they are reading the text and seeing the relevance for themselves. I think, so I don't know whether this would be a weakness. The, the, the problem with um, the wretched of the earth is that it's set in very specific historical circumstances. So if you don't know those historical circumstances, it's a bit difficult to understand the book. But once you know the general uh, uh, flow of what colonialism was, then the book comes to life. Just curious, are you teaching it in French or in English? Because I know you, you teach English. both in English. Yes. Okay. So I, I do want us to go to the chapter on national culture, but it seems to me that you're saying that um, you, you need to understand like the context of the whole book and then we can zero in. And if we don't get to that, this, this, this podcast will get to that, the next podcast. So would you please give us an overview very generally of the book? I know there's a preface, which is not written by Fanon, and that preface has got a lot of attention. And then I think there are about five or six chapters and then a conclusion. So maybe if you can just talk us through 
each of the chapters and the preface. Let's start with the preface. Why is the preface um, something that has been seen as being very significant in its own right? Okay, the preface was written by Jean-Paul Sartre, who was um, acknowledged as one of the, the, the prominent French philosophers uh, of the colonial situation. He, he seemed to be one of the, the major French intellectuals who was willing to concede that the colonial situation is a problem for Africans, and therefore, because it's a problem for Africans, it's a human problem, and it's a problem even for the French. Um, that is something that few intellectuals were doing at the time. And we saw in um, Discourse on Colonialism by Aimé Césaire, he, he really made a lot of noise about the fact that uh, Europeans would complain about the Holocaust, but they would colonize and not see uh, a, a distinction between... Uh, they would think it's different. Okay, so, so hold on. Just tell me, who is Aimé Césaire? Aimé Césaire was Fanon's teacher in high school, but he's also one of the pillars of the Negritude movement. And he, he was, he's seen as the sort of the political cultural icon of the person who understood what it meant to be black in a world that denied the humanity of black people. So he was from Martinique and he was a poet. He later on became a politician, but he was very instrumental in developing uh, Fanon's uh, identity as a black man because in Martinique there was a move towards um, um, saying no I'm not African anymore because I've been here for many centuries but um, Césaire and later Fanon insisted that we may have been here for this uh, long time but we are still African. So we will unpack also what the Negritude movement was about yeah. And so Jean-Paul Sartre is in conversation with not just Fanon, but also a lot of other people, including Césaire. Yes. And so he's, he's writing a preface for this book was seen as significant yes. in, to all intellect, intellectuals in general in the Western world. Yeah, but another thing to mention is that, which is sort of not a very flattering thing, but when Francophone black people were publishing in, in Paris, there was a sense in which... Uh, France felt this book doesn't mean much unless it has a European uh, sort of godfather. Mm -hmm. And that is a practice actually that came from the 19th century, even in the, or even before, do, even before the revolution in France, um, the king sort of commissioned your book for it to be legitimate. So in a sense, it's sort of a carryover of that culture of endorsing, getting an endorsement of the book from a, a white French intellectual. So that was part of the larger process. Uh, it was part of the larger practice of publishing by Africans in France mm -hmm. at the time. What makes it unique in this case is that you're talking about a white French intellectual who recognizes that there's an injustice in the colonial situation. So that, in, that is what makes the preface unique. It's not that the fact that it was written, but the fact that it was Sartre who was writing and who would very openly tell the French, in between two Frenchmen, there is a dead African, meaning this colonial situation is our problem. It's not just an African problem. So Sartre was very unique in that sense, and that's why the preface is so important. And he also recognized that even though Fanon is talking to fellow colonized people, so to speak, there is a message for the colonizer yes. to also understand. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so that was, um, that's why the preface is important and worth reading, even when you read the book. Sometimes, you know, we just skip over the forward and the preface and go to the book. Yeah. And then now there are five chapters and then there's a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the chapters? Because there's a linkage. He's actually working on an argument, mm -hmm. moving from one chapter to the other and then coming to a conclusion. So if you could just tell us a little bit about the book before we come to the chapter on national culture. Okay, I think it's important to note that the general, the book generally, what Fanon is trying to do is to acknowledge that there's a struggle. There's a struggle for freedom in Africa. But he could already see that there were going to be problems uh, with, with the post-colonial quote-unquote situation if, there were, if we didn't really think through certain issues. What does violence mean? What does it do? Does violence necessarily mean uh, redemption of the country and he unpackages that and he talks about the two the two purposes of violence violence can be cathartic meaning it's a you're releasing pressure for the colonial subject so it's cathartic in that sense it gives a sense of relief but he was saying towards the end that you cannot settle for just the cathartic role of, of violence it must become revolutionary and that revolutionariness is 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 uh, facilitated by the intellectual and then of course he also talks about but you see some of the intellectuals are already negotiating with the state for positions so he he unpacks the complexity around violence so that we who are looking at independence we can look back and be sure what kind of violence are we talking about so that we don't assume that every violence is a violence for revolution, mm. which is a mistake that many countries have made, including us. So that's how he opens in his first chapter concerning violence. Yes. So in the second chapter, now he unpackages the spontaneous violence a little bit more. And he talks about what are the strengths of this spontane spontaneous reaction and what are the weaknesses? So this is violence that nobody has sat down and planned for. It yes. just happens. Yes, it just happens. And you see, I've already, he's already said in the first chapter that you need to be careful not to assume that spontaneous violence is revolutionary violence. So in the second chapter is now where he unpacks what are the weaknesses of this spontaneous violence. And he talks about things like geography, you know, who are the people who are violent? It's usually in the rural areas, the urban, uh, the urban people are sort of open to negotiation. So he talks about all those other uh, sort of dynamics around, around the violence. But of course he says that the spontaneous, the spontane spontaneity of the violence is good because it can, it can spark off change, but it is not the change. It is just the spark to start off the change, but he, remember his caution throughout the Wretched of the Earth is to say, don't settle for just the violence. You need to think about restructuring the nation. So Fanon is not, a, he's been accused of this, that he's an apologist for violence. Mm -hmm. He's saying, no, even when you have the violence, it's not going to solve your problem. Yes. It's just, it, it, it allows you to see there's a problem mm -hmm. and then you need to do something about it. Yes. Okay, and so then he moves on to talk about the pitfalls of national consciousness. So what happens in the case of, uh, and this is what we saw in Kenya, what happens when, when this spontaneous violence 
is that the, bourge, the sort of the intellectuals, the African intellectuals, start to use that violence to negotiate positions in the colonial state. And what they do is to say, they go to the colonialists and say, look, our people are rioting in the, in the village. If you want them to stop, give me a position because I am the one who can tell them to stop. And so, and, and so what these guys are essentially doing is arguing that if you want this violence to stop, put more Africans in positions of power. So, you know, if the violence is coming from, from Kikuyu land, for example, put more Kikuyus in power. If it is coming from coasts like that. But Fanon was saying this Africanization is very dangerous because it is not built on a consciousness of what is the wrong with the colonial situation. It is built on identity. It is just about counting the bodies. How many Africans do we have in, in Kenya Railways, for example? How many Africans do we have in Central Bank? But you're not really asking, is this the way Kenya Railways, Railways should be organized? So he was cautioning in this particular chapter. He was saying, if you just go for mere Africanization, it will soon develop into tribalism. Because the person who is saying African, African, African in 1963, in 1965, he's going to be saying Kikuyu, Kikuyu, Kikuyu. And in 1974, he'll be saying my district, my district, my district. So it keeps on becoming, it keeps narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. And so he's saying you have to build the national consciousness on a consciousness, not on an identity but on a consciousness of what the political situation is and wh what are people's positions on that political situation. So instead of my grandmother who fought for we need more Africans, yes. my mother fought for we need more Taitas, yes. I now fight for we need more people from my constituency of Bundani, yes. now my child will be fighting for my ward. Yes. And he's saying that doesn't help any of us, we must yes. change the system. Yeah, we must change the system. And all these intellectuals who, or nationalists whom we see talking, we must judge them not on their identity, but on their position on politi their political positions. So, for example, in the case of Jomo Kenyatta, we would have avoided the problem we are in now if we looked at his positions, not at where he came from. But if we looked at his statements and his beliefs and his philosophy about African freedom and, and governance, we would have spotted some of these problems that we are now seeing. Although the people who spotted them ended up being detained or jailed or exiled. So a few people saw through it, but as a nation we didn't. We, we fell for the Africanization and we were happy, but we never really interrogated what were the positions of these Africans on freedom and colonialism. So we move from this sense of identity to a place of ideas. Yes. And this is how he then goes into the chapter on national culture, yes. which is a discussion of ideas mm -hmm. and not of identity. Yes. And I know we're going to come back and talk about that chapter at length in the next podcast. So I just want you to say a little bit about the last chapter, which is on colonial wars and mental disorders. Okay, in, in the last chapter, remember Fanon was a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and actually how he ended up talking about freedom is that he was a psychiatrist who was sent to Algeria to treat mental disorders of both French soldiers and Algerian, Algerians. And he said, this is ridiculous, I can't give, keep on giving medicine for diseases that are created socially. 
And so we must fix, the medicine we need is a, a social one. It's not a biological medical one. So in colonial wars and mental disorders, that's where he, he, he proves, which, is, which I think is so wonderful about him, he proves that the colonial situation traumatizes everybody, including the colonialists. Everybody is traumatized because he says colonialism is a crime against humanity. It is not a crime of Africa, against Africans by Europeans. It is a crime of oppression against the human being. And so he explores how the colonialism and the war of liberation affected both the French and Algerians to, so that he could show us the problem with colonialism is the assault on humanity. It's not the assault on a culture or a race of people. It's an assault on the human being. Even those of us who are oppressors end up becoming the wretched of the earth, in the, to yes. use that. Yeah, we are also traumatized. They are also traumatized by, by colonialism. And then we come to his conclusion, which is? A new human being. I love that chapter. He says, let us, you know, give away all this, all this oppression and capitalism and, you know, lack of care for one another. Let us together create a new human being. So that's what he, and, and in fact, it's a celebration. If you read the last, I think it's about two pages, he says it as a celebration that we can actually all of us come together and, and create a new human being. Thank you, Dr. Njoya. I'm going to say Dr. Njoya because you've really helped us think through what Fanon is trying to do with the wretched of the earth. Mm -hmm. In our ne next podcast, we're going to now look at this place, why national culture is right, you know, he's building up his argument to make, to say that culture is really important and the sense of a national culture is very important. And we look at what he means when he says that. And I look forward to having that conversation with you. Looking forward to, I love talking about finance. So.